Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io. Okay, welcome to Arroya Office Hours Live. My name is Keisha and I'll be your moderator for today's discussion. A couple of reminders before we get started. This hour is your chance to hear from the experts, get answers in real time about data you're seeing with your grow, and share cultivation tips and tricks with other growers in this exciting industry. Thank you everyone in advance for not using this time to air uh, pollen seed grievances or industry grievances or to ask about Arroya pricing, although please do book a demo and let's talk. Feel free to type your questions in the chat at any time. If your question is selected, we'll have you unmute yourself and ask away. Uh, folks who ask a question live for the first time today will win an Arroya hat. We are limiting that to U.S. Res residents and one hat only. Um, Seth and Jason, you notice anything different about me today? Nice shirt. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So we have something very special for our attendees today. If you post your email address in the chat, you will automatically be entered to win one of our special edition Arroyo t-shirts. I've got one of them. Here's another one. This is another favorite member of the Root Zone Club. Not sure if you guys can see that. I, yeah. I can display it real quick a little bit here. Oh, yeah. Let's spin around. Oh, see, there it is. <laughs> yeah. So if you want one of our limited edition Arroyo t-shirts, post your email address in the chat. You'll be entered to win. Post your questions. And... Uh, Seth, Jason, you guys ready for our first question from Instagram? I think we are. Yeah, throw them at us. So. You, you guys were born ready. Okay. This comes from the Frost Boss. They want to know, when are you releasing Oklahoma compliance section? Metric is next month. Ah, Oklahoma. We uh, actually talked about this uh, with the software guys yeah. this morning. So we, I think, are very close to, to getting our acceptance from Oklahoma for the metric integration. Um, after that, it usually takes us about six weeks or so to do all the validation with that integration. Um, so shouldn't be too long. Um, probably uh, sometime in June, we'll be, we'll be launching for Oklahoma official metric integration with Arroyo. Um, for other states that are metric, we are working on our generic harvest workflow, which will let you use our scales, uh, use our scanners or your own scanners that can be barcode RFID. So you can get individual plant weights or you can do uh, bulk weighing pretty quickly with our Bluetooth scale. We call it our touchless harvest system. It's similar to some of the other options on the, the market, but uh, it directly integrates with Arroyo. An example of how people can increase their productivity is they'll have a few Arroyo client logins and they'll have a scale attached to each of those say if they're taking 1400 1500 plants down we've got clients that'll be doing that in two or three hours um, using multiple scales and enough staff to do that that processing flow so any of those states that we don't have metric integration for yet whether they are metric states or not we'll be offering that generic harvest workflow It'll also give you a CSV formatted to directly upload as a metric harvest. So that's a nice, nice way to ensure um, data accuracy, you know, keep you down from doing redundant writing, reading, and uh, save you some time during your harvest groups. Yeah, and I just want to highlight, you know, uh, typically it doesn't take a terribly long amount of time, but each state has had its own small procedural differences and small metric rule differences. So we always want to, you know, not rush it too much and make sure it's going to support everything it needs to for Oklahoma. 
Yeah, even better with that that harvest workflow. Well, we always encourage our clients to keep track of, of historical inputs and outputs, and so you'll be writing your harvest wet weights directly to your harvest group record. So if you did a little bit of different crop steering, you want to see what the output was versus uh, you know last time you ran a specific strain. Use that generic harvest workflow. Use your metric harvest integrations and uh, start writing those weights to the record. Yeah, take out the data entry step. Instead of writing it down and then putting it in the computer, just go straight to spreadsheet with it. Take human error out of the out of the mix really, really helps. Probably makes the past, uh, the process go a lot faster. Yeah, not to mention, you know, trying to write on a clip piece of paper on a clipboard when your hands are all sticky and you can't let go of the pen and someone tears off half the page when they're trying to hand you the clipboard. There's a um, few logistical problems <laughs> just with Harvest itself and it's nice to keep things flowing rather than having to have one person sit there just with a clipboard running a scale. You don't like resin fingerprints on your computer? No. Okay. That's what the touchscreen's for. That way you can get some alcohol and clean it off later. All right. <laughs> what states do we currently offer a metric integration? So Oklahoma is coming. We offer it currently um, and is deployed in Colorado, California, Massachusetts, Maine, um, Nevada. Yep. Michigan. Michigan. Yep. I think that's our list that's it for now. Yeah. We usually, typically we roll on more States, uh, you know, as needed with metric coming online there. And then obviously how many clients we have in the state also helps dictate that if we have a lot of clients in immediate need, obviously that pushes it a little bit faster. Um, you know, and then like Oklahoma, there's a green explosion there in the last year. So obviously we're getting a lot of pressure from Oklahoma growers to move this along. It's coming for you, Oklahoma. It's exciting. Awesome. I'm going to move on to our, uh, oh, we actually have a question here. Our good friend, Michael. Michael, are you able to unmute yourself? You want to ask? I can also go for it. Um, here we go. He wrote, oh yeah, I hear you on the poor signal. <laughs> All good. Uh, he wrote here to decrease EC in your substrate. If substrate size becomes an issue, would you recommend decreasing incoming EC to reduce buildup? Potentially depends on where your EC is at. If you're stacked up to a comfortable level where we're going to be able to maintain, um, not really a problem. If we're talking about substrate size becoming an issue, typically the problem is we have to feed it too much throughout the day and that's an opportunity to, to achieve runoff too many times. So what we look at is instead of reducing incoming EC, make sure we're giving it enough extra water at the end of P1 or adding a singular P2 runoff event that's going to help us bring that EC back down. Yeah, I mean, another thing obviously there is, is if the substrate is too large, being the substrate issue, then it's going to be a little bit different tactic than if the substrate is too small. So one of the things I see quite a bit is people uh, working to flower in, in six by six by six cubes. And, you know, if, if you are double stacked and you're running a really short plant, you might be able to get away with that, that small and media size. Um, if you are running full size plants and, and you have, you know, six feet, eight feet of uh, headspace above your um, substrate, then, we run into people where they, they have to irrigate way too many times. Uh, and a lot of times, depending on what their feed EC is, they can definitely run into steering issues as far as uh, doing that many irrigations and, and attempting to hit their EC goals. And so 
you know, most of the time we do like to kind of keep our EC fairly static as far as the feed EC goes throughout the flower cycle. Um, that being said, it is an option. Um, you know, and we do talk a little bit later in, uh, in flower with, um, with ripening to, to lower your feed EC. So that, that is one, one good way to go too small of a substrate. Thanks for the clarification. So, yeah, basically you're just, you're fighting to keep water on them all day. And if you're not hitting runoff, your EC is stacking up way too much. Um, I would probably, if it's, let's see, plants are big for their bridges. (laughs) I would recommend, yeah, keep honestly eliminating variables. You can control EC through runoff. So it's honestly just one more thing to change and then eventually chase your tail with. So it's better to keep it a constant. And that's why we talk about running, you know, 3.0 all the way through. It's one less variable in the system, and it means that other adjustments we make, we can, you know, single out, okay, this irrigation strategy is what changed that, what worked. We suddenly switch to a lower or higher EC feed. Suddenly our handle on uh, how, how well we can intuitively steer that EC based on runoff becomes way more difficult because you're used to saying, okay, I put on this amount of, amount of shots at this size. Here's the EC reduction I'm used to seeing. Suddenly we change the feed strength. That irrigation strategy also has to change to get the same EC reduction. And it, generally the first couple times you do it, you're going to over or undershoot that with the mix. So consistency is, again, pretty well key. And, and just for some more details there, you know, when Seth says 3.0 for the whole flower cycle, that's, that's a very generic um, starting place for mixed salts that we talk about. If you're a client, I definitely encourage you to, to chat with Seth, chat with Noah, kind of go over some of the more details, what nutrient lines you're running, what your mm-hmm. um, lighting sources are like, uh, and that's going to actually dictate a little bit of modulation right away from that that 3.0. And, you know, some of the things that you know we're not great at helping with is trying to keep up with how many strains are on the market and their preferential EC mm-hmm. levels. And that's where documenting your harvest groups, getting yields in there, understanding, all right, when we feed a a new strain a little bit higher does it perform better you know are we wasting nutrients did it perform the same etc and another thing to kind of keep about um keep an eye on keep a thought about is ec stacking versus what i might call ec spiking maybe we don't really have a term for it but when i traditionally talk about ec stacking i'm talking about uh, a nominal increase from day to day because of a lower amount of runoff in like a smaller substrate, what you're probably seeing is um, is EC spiking, right? And that is that transpiration rate is, is so much that the water content is dropping very quickly and reverse your EC is going up pretty quickly as well. And so you, know, you, you can try to run a little bit more runoff, but realistically what you're going to have to do is just widen up your irrigation window so you don't get into really low water contents and, and that's going to affect your vegetative versus generative steering tactics. So, you know, if we think about application versus plant response, if we uh, are applying a wide irrigation window during what we're trying to do is generative stacking, but what's actually happening is the plant is running out of water. So we're just trying to basically mitigate too small a substrate as the plant's going to feel a more generative response anyway, simply because of that EC spiking. And uh, so, you know, look at your graphs, look at how fast that EC is rising. And, uh, and try to evaluate, do we need to get uh, a bigger media size in here for next run? And, and how do we mm-hmm. mitigate uh, this, this cycle? Yeah, and that's important too when we're looking at spiking. You know, Always remember that the farther extremes, 
especially the low end of the water content, that EC spikes, you know, exponentially. So if you dried, dried down 3% more today than you did yesterday, just because your plant got bigger, you can expect to see a, a decent EC spike at that far end. So that's another thing to look at. If you're worried about those spikes, but it's not a consistent problem or it cropped up today and it wasn't here yesterday, but my lowest water content kept going lower than it did previously, might look at changing your irrigation strategy to keep up and make sure we're keeping that range up and not going too low, which is a constant challenge when our irrigation schedule needs adjusted almost daily during certain parts of the flowering cycle. Great, Michael, such a great question. Um, thank you so much for asking. And I mean, this is what we're here for. Let us know, anybody who just joined our broadcast here, let us know what questions you have. Please do post them in the chat. We would love to talk to uh, you about them today. Uh, we are offering a hat to folks who asked for the first time. Michael, we, I'm happy to say is a regular. I love it when he's on with us. Um, and then, uh, of course, anybody who is on with us today, please do post your email address in the chat so we can enter you into a raffle for one of our special edition t-shirts okay our next question does come from instagram this is from digital bullet 85 he wants to know what sensors do the data logging uh so the the data logging is actually done in the cloud so all of our sensors are um, reporting new readings every three minutes that's sending back to what's called your gateway it's just basically a small Roya computer that's on your network and that thing is uh it's queuing and sending data up to the cloud so our terrace 12s uh what they're sending for data is you know your substrate information as far as water content electrical connectivity we represent that in poor water electrical connectivity on the front end and then substrate temperature uh, another sensor that we have out there that's probably the second most common is our climate stations that's going to be reporting vapor pressure deficit uh, relative humidity and air temperature. We've got our quantum sensor. Just gotta interrupt you for a second because I'm excited about this. We added an absolute humidity reading as well to the Atmos, which is pretty rad, grams per meter cubed, which is pretty neat when you're trying to calculate, you know, how much water we gotta pull out of the air in this facility. It is, yeah, you know, it's nice for kind of, if you do need to retrofit uh, HVAC applications, um, most HVAC systems are gonna be representing in how much grams or volume virtually metric you know, one gram is one milliliter of water. Um, so most HVAC systems are, are rated on how fast that they can pull water out of there. So it might be you know, 1,200 grams a minute, whatever that, that system is, is rated for. So kind of one of this, I was actually talking um, to our scientists two days ago uh, about this, and that is when we work with people crop steering, a lot of times they end up with a lot more, a lot more wet bud mass in their dry rooms mm -hmm. than they're used to. So get a climate station in there kind of keep an eye on hey are, are we beyond our, our limits to dehumidify this room or you know we right at right at that edge or how much more water in actual volume do we need to pull in there to hit the ranges that we want to hit yeah we can evaluate whether this 225 pint unit is going to actually do what we want it to or it's not going to be enough before we make the purchase on that one but back to the original question sorry to get tangential there uh, I think we were on quantum sensor. So. Well, if we're on data logging. Yeah. So everything, right? The quantum sensor, that's data logging your instantaneous PPFD, and then thus giving you your DLI, which is awesome. We've got the ES2, you know, so bulk EC for our feed. And the only thing that's not data logged, actually, automatically is the Solus. 
that would be the one part that you have to make sure gets it in there if you're spot checking. Yeah, and on top of that, we do offer a fairly comprehensive sensor suite for some of the most important variables that are going on in there. But when I was growing, I realized that there's a lot of a lot of activities that are going on from humans, and that's really why we've emphasized the importance of taking annotations in your facility. You know, talking about what tasks are getting done and attributing that to the growth cycle as well. Because when we when we think about you know, a very limited variable run. So maybe we run two cycles right next to each other and the data is, you know, as spot on or as matched as it could be. And we have different outcomes. You know, is that due to when we deleaved, how much we deleaved, some of the pesticide applications that we put in there, or are we making sure to do our crop registration on a regular basis so that we have that, um, that metadata, that additional level of information that attributes each cycle. Oh yeah. And we've, we've got to quantify it. I mean, that's the main thing. This is so cyclical that the human mind is, uh, I mean, I'm sure some people have a way better memory than I do, but when I've grown the same strains for 20 or 30 times, at some point you go, well, I remember to have this response once, but now I can't find a picture. I can't find any notes. So then you start going off of, you know, just kind of observational feels. And that's not where you want to be when you're trying to run a business. So notes, pictures and recording absolutely everything, even if that means changing your schedule for that particular harvest group and saying, okay, we are actually taking some days out of bulking and adding some to generative steering just because we got a stretchy strain. Recording all those differences so that you can really utilize that data logging to your advantage, not just stare at a pile of data and go, okay, I see some lines, but what did, you really want to know what that line means as far as what a plant should look like. Exactly. We have clients that have been continuously registering their harvest groups for about three years now. They can go back, look at all the sensor data, look at any of the annotations they've put in there. They can use uh, cultivar profiles, which is basically talking about isolating a specific cultivar and then looking at all the different runs. Uh, Putting pictures in there is a great way to do it. You know, if we've got something that's susceptible to foxtailing, we used to have a pineapple and it was most always foxtailing, but every once in a while we'd, we'd grow it and, it and it wouldn't. So we mm-hmm. had some pictures in there. We could talk about the, the environmental parameters. Um, it was up in greenhouses here in the Northwest. So maybe it was, you know, a seasonal response that we were, weren't able to achieve the right parameters for that pineapple. And we want to know why. Um, and obviously not everybody gets to run the same strains for, for three years um, in a row, but uh a lot of people are running on faster cycles than we were able to as well. And we've mm-hmm. got clients with 50, 60, 70 plus rooms. Uh, they're able to basically do do test runs um, and or production runs on a very quick basis. I mean, if you're pushing out 50 rooms with uh, you know six cycles a year, that's that's 300 sets of, of harvest groups that can give you information <laughs> on a strain. Yeah. And if, you know, maybe you even have 20 strains at that facility then you're, you're getting some pretty good data libraries built up to make analysis from. Oh, absolutely. And one thing, you know, you can do with Arroyo is as you learn more and more tools to put in your toolbox of crop steering knowledge, um, you can start developing those recipes at a very accelerated rate compared to just looking historically at the data. You know, in such a short time, if we have such a big amount of data, we can actually make a decision. We have 10 runs on one strain inside of a few months and our facilities actually, you know, pretty consistent room wise, you know, environmentally, man, we can, we can do some stuff fast compared to, you know, 
years ago, like in agronomic research, we'd put out all these sensors, gather them up at the end of the summer, basically, and then sit down and make some graphs that we get to present and talk about all winter. And then we got, you know, that one cycle next summer to improve upon. Well, yeah, now it's we, we can actually make improvements in real time and make more money. That's the end goal for everyone. Yeah, and, you know, I think this is something that I talk a lot about is that just applying the scientific method to your cultivation practices. And if you are trying to make a change, um, and, and this is difficult because some changes go hand in hand with other changes, you know, nutrient levels, light intensities, CO2 levels, sometimes they all relate to each other for the, the best amount. Um, that being said, you know, if you really want to understand which exact variable it is, you only get to change one at a time. And that's where annotations also come in as a big play is uh, making sure that miscellaneous variables that aren't being tracked by a, a data logging a sensor system get uh, get informed so that you aren't not making one-to-one comparisons when multiple variables are changed. Got to learn from history so you can decide whether it's worth repeating or not, right? Absolutely. Awesome. Uh, Michael, you posted a great comment here. Two months goes quickly with five harvests a week. Ain't that the truth? Awesome. Okay, we have some folks who are posting their email addresses to be entered into our t-shirt drawing. That gets me really excited, so excited about that. Um, All right, our next question comes from our friends at River City Growers. They want to know, when will we see integration with environmental controllers in Arroyo? We're a ways off. Um, You know, some of the environmental controls uh, are, they're, they're very hardwired um these are systems been proven some of my favorite are actually based on what's called um building management systems they've been deployed in hotels and um hospitals and a lot of types of of those places where they are controlling at a much larger scale than even some of our largest facilities and uh and so we're a ways off from that obviously we can pass our information from our open api and you guys are welcome to use that however you'd like in your building management system. Um, you know, if we're looking at horticulture specific operations, you, you know, there's companies like Argus and uh, Hortimax and Priva, Growlink, maybe Wadsworth Seed. And, uh, you know, I encourage you to, you know, reach out to those companies and give them some, some encouragement to start working with open APIs so that you can draw our information and, and use it based on uh, what the software programming in their specific systems allow you to do. So, you know, from that standpoint, um, you know, you're welcome to make control decisions on, on our information right now. Uh, we do report climate data every three minutes. So it's, it's not my recommendation to be making climate decisions on that just because at least in greenhouses, when we get, uh, you know, solar stuff going on, clouds uh there can be pretty dynamic changes in our in our environment and so my favorite way to use some of that open api data is actually just to validate your climate controls so if we've got our roya sensor right next to our our climate controlling sensor then um, let's just write a little comparison where it says all right well every time i get an arroya data point let's plot that against our climate data point and if it's within you know plus or minus one percent plus or minus two percent whatever your usual threshold is then use that as a validation if it goes way off then we probably know we need to go in there uh, check the climate control sensor maybe recalibrate it um, try and figure out what's going on with it uh, every once in a while in facilities and this used to used to get me off 
off guard pretty easy is, you know, one of your employees moves the sensor or, um, you know, something, (laughs) something physical gets changed that actually alters the attributes of what decisions are being made. Um, That being said, uh, beyond HVAC, we are making some very good headway on our open sprinkler uh, irrigation integration. Uh, We're very excited about that. Uh, Kind of our, our first step to be directly pushing commands locally from our gateway to your irrigation systems. Yeah. And something I'd really like to highlight, you know, meter spent a long, long time developing just sensors and focusing on that technology. So even when we do look at something like the implementation of controls through Arroyo, no matter what, we're going to be looking at working with other people who have put just as much money into developing and manufacturing control equipment as we have into sensors. We don't want to reinvent the wheel. So we're just taking our time to make sure we work with the right people and find ways for people like through this open API to get the information they need to use a system that is, you know, I mean, Argus, uh, THC controls, Priva, you, you name it. A lot of these people have a lot of money and time into developing these systems and they actually do work pretty well. So we'll get there, but, um, I just want to give some background so people don't get so excited. We don't, we don't make big electrical switches or relays, things like that. We are about the sensing technology. That's great. Thank you for your comment, Michael. He wrote, so excited for the fertigation program. Me too. Yeah, that's <laughs> great. Um, for less tech-inclined folks like myself, do you guys mind breaking down what the open API means? Give us a little bit of more on that, how that works. Sure. Um, and I can tell you as much as I know and how I've implemented it. So uh, open APIs basically give us a, a shout and we can build you an API key so that you can draw from the specific user that you want an API key for. We can provide the, the data points, um, room information, facility name, and uh, really it's the best way to, to get your data points dynamically into another system. So it updates every three minutes. I pull a new data point and I, I know what's going on in those climate stations. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, you do need an uh, open API key. If you have someone that's uh, familiar with programming or has done APIs in the past, it should be a very quick and easy process to get that rock and roll and have that data pipe to where you need to. Um, if you don't, well, stay up extra late a few nights and learn how to implement an API. I was going to say, be like us and read a bunch of stuff that you barely understand until you figure out, oh, it's not that complicated. YouTube tutorials. Pretty much. I mean, and APIs are just programs that, you know, kind of go in between two different programs, pulling information out of one and giving it to another. So it's, you know, it's not complicated, but that being said, there's a lot of options on the other end for what API you want to use. So that's why ours is open. So we can accommodate anyone, not just be locked into say one specific API program and then find out that a bunch of people don't use that one. So let's keep it open. And specifically, um, you know, program whatever you need to get the right data into to push an API call. We use a REST API, and uh, it'll feed you back a, a JSON file based on what sensor data or what other data that you've specified to pull. Awesome. Michael just shared, we already set up with the API and work on a valve system to match the data and fertigation program. Wonderful. We love to hear it. Keep us posted on that. Great. Okay. Um, folks who are on with us, we want to answer your questions. So if you have any, feel free to post some on the chat. Um, my next one comes from Instagram. Grower Libertaria wants to know if Arroyo is available in Brazil. 
I don't think it is. I don't, yeah, I don't know if we've had that request yet. <laughs> I, I actually don't know uh, any of the radio laws or anything surrounding Brazil off the top of my head, to be honest. So how does it work? How do we expand into other countries? What, what's involved in that? Um, so basically it's looking at compliance laws. Um, we, we use a specific radio in, in our sensor that uh, we have to validate with the FCC so that it's not interfering with other radio signals in our country. And uh, so, yeah, we'd have to kind of look at um, distribution and support channels there as well as how legally we can, we can stay protected and, and deliver that. Yeah, and, and some of it, you know, it's like uh, Europe right now we're working on. They have slightly different laws about what are commercial and private frequencies. So those are like little things that we have to delve into for each country. And some of them, in the case of the radio frequency, present an actual technical challenge that we'll have to manufacture a visually the same but internally slightly different product for that region. Um, hopefully that's not the case for Brazil. I just I don't know the information off the top of my head, to be honest. Yeah, we'll we'll make a note to look into it. See um see what kind of options are available down there. Yeah. Are we what other countries are we in? Um I think we're in Canada, right? Yep. Yeah. Awesome. Great. That was actually my last question submitted from Instagram today. So attendees, now's your chance to let us know what we can oh, and look at that. <laughs> On cue. Here we go. Mike or Mark, excuse me, you want to go ahead and un unmute yourself and ask your question? Yes. Hello, everyone. Hi, Mark. Hi. Um, been listening to you guys for a while, implementing some of the changes and seeing some good results, so thank you. Uh, we are using Trollmaster now for uh, control and for substrate water content. Um, control is great, but we're struggling with the, the substrate reading. Mm -hmm. um, we've looked at current competing offerings, and we have went through your demo, and we have you guys in our plan. Um, Awesome. Well, one thing is, we, I think we've determined that we have uh, uh, our plants are maybe too big for the one-gallon cocoa bags that are going into flower. We're struggling with uh, uh, plants drying back too fast overnight. Mm -hmm. um, we're switching from a four-week veg to a three-week veg to help with that and uh, trying to get down to a, to a, a sub-three-week veg or a two-week veg. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, two questions that, that I have, both kind of related to each other. Um, uh, in the beginning of uh, the flower stages, it may take until four hours before the light's out to reach the proper P3, uh, I'm sorry, P3 dry back from the previous day. So do we stick to the, the P3 dry back target and wait, or do we give P1 watering two hours after light's on or whatever? Uh, even if the P3 dry back hasn't hasn't reached, uh, been reached by the time we uh, uh, want to begin the P1 watering. Sure. So, well, when you say P3 dry back, I'm just going to call that you know, last irrigation to first irrigation, probably you know overnight, oh, whether yeah. it be night or not. You know, photo period off dry back. Uh, I like to stick with the same irrigation time on a daily basis, and then really just modify how wide your irrigation window is in order to hit that P3, right? So if we didn't quite get to, you know, maybe we were shooting for a 25% dryback in some of that um, generative stacking, you know, we can uh, we can nix off a irrigation or two um, 
for that day uh, and it'll get you into the, a little bit closer dry back range for the, the day after that. Yeah. Okay. And, and one thing to remember too, is like that regularity and how we're training these plants to be, I mean, essentially getting them on a cycle and a rhythm. Um, if we only targeted a dry back goal and said like 25% and that took two days, but I can actually get 15% from, you know, the end of, let's say we're going generative, the end of P1 to two hours after lights on the next morning. That's okay to only get a 15% dry back. We just want to make sure we've passed that at least 10 and ideally 15% threshold to know that we've got good transpiration and good root health. If you're only getting, you know, let's say a 6% dry back overnight, we can change irrigation, but clearly there's probably an environmental problem we need to look at in trying to figure that out. That dry back really is a metric to look at how well you're creating an environment for that plant to transpire. Okay, so keep the, the, the P1 feedings on time, essentially. Exactly. Okay, the second question is, um, if we reach uh, the P3 dry back during the dark hours, do we water during the dark or wait until lights on? Is there some kind of tolerance threshold? That's a little tricky one. I mean, my answer is going to be just kind of the inverse of, of what I talked about, where we want to just add a couple of P2 events so that we've got a wider irrigation um, window and our dry back time isn't quite as much because um, most of the stuff isn't going to moderate the transpiration rate at, at all. And so that's, you know, that's my best. What the threshold is, it's kind of a scary one. I, you know, <laughs> night night irrigations are usually never good. Um, you know, if, if we're something in, in rock wool and we're getting lower than you know, 25%, I mean, maybe 30%. Yeah, it just depends on how scared you are of uh, developing hydrophobic and irrigation channeling possibilities in something like a rock wool. You know, something like a cocoa, you might be able to get away a little bit farther than that. And uh, so it just comes down to kind of a risk risk mitigation you know we're more worried yeah. about um molds and stuff you know when we're irrigating at night and introducing a lot of humidity to the room do we have capacity to, to combat that um and then you know is our, is our media susceptible to um, permanent damage or even temporary damage if we get too low in that water content yeah the, the p3 waterings i would use as a last resort band-aid in my irrigation planning with p2s Try to shoot for, you know, 5% over what you want your bottom to be with your planting. That way, if you do have a pot or a plant that's going to dry down that extra 3-4%, you're going to see that when you, you know, wake up and check your graph. But then you didn't dry down from, uh, you know, 22 to 18 in cocoa, which might actually be pretty yeah. bad. Instead, you just, you're shooting for 25 and then you hit the 22. And that's yeah, so okay. This is, this is what we're struggling with with our, with our plants being too big. Uh, in the one gallon, um, and we're and we're working on that side, uh, but we're not there yet, and uh, and and so and uh, we are also under the the feeling like we want to cut off the P two irrigation uh, at one point and and use those as kind of a last resort, um, just to to give them some time before lights out. Yeah, ideally you'd want to ripen with that short irrigation window and long dryback, but in the small pot that's difficult. One thing I'm finding a lot of people are having success with is if they've established a good plant size for their facility, just going up to the two gallon pots can make a big difference. Even though we've, you know, spent the last couple of years trying to get people going to, to smaller and smaller pots, there is a point where you outgrow that small pot. So really dialing that size in and deciding, okay, are we going to go in at, you know, 
12, 14, 16 inches tall to accommodate this one gallon pot? Or do we just get a little bit bigger pot? Because by all other metrics, we're pretty happy with the way this is turning out. Cool. Okay, right on. Thank you, guys. I appreciate all the help. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks Thanks. for asking. Yeah. Yeah, Mark, thank you so much for your questions. You're a first-time question asker. And everybody who asks a question for the first time gets sent an Arroyo hat. So if you don't mind dropping your email address in the chat, we would love to get one over to you. And uh, we're also going to enter you into a raffle for one of our special edition T-shirts. Um, a couple of our ND- attendees posted some comments during this conversation. Luke wrote, have you tested the Terrace 12 in Biochar Media? Um, Luke, you want to unmute yourself and speak to that? Or not? You don't have to. <laughs> Maybe not. All right. And then Michael wrote, uh, got you, Luke, please chill away. I love it. Um, (laughs) Michael responded, we have to add P2 events in our larger strains um, at at day 10 through 12. We try to shoot for a minimum of a 10% between P1 and the additional P2. So we are cutting the slope versus creating a new saturation event. That's great. That kind of information. Um, That's what we're here for also, just like the community, right, Seth and Jason? Can I answer that first one quick? Because it's going to be quick. Luke, yes, <laughs> extensively by a lot of people across the country. So you'll have great luck with the Terrace 12 in your biochar. Um, as far as adding P2 events, um, you know, the idea with generative steering, uh, day 10 to 12. Okay, so in generative steering, we're, you know, really trying to space apart those irrigation events. And the plant doesn't really know how much water's in the soil until we hit a point where it actually gets very difficult for it to pull it out. So when we're trying to space out in the daytime, again, that, that percent of dryback between the two events in generative is not what's important. It's trying to push that spacing out. So ideally, we want to bring it back up, you know, a corrective amount of percentage about two hours before lights off and try to just give us as much space from the end of P1 until we hit that P2 as possible. That being said, if you have an eight and a half foot tall plant in a one gallon pot and you're going to dry down to uh, like a wilting point or dry down the top of the pot so hard it beads water off in cocoa, uh, then we're talking a little bit different strategy there where we're just going to have to fight to keep that plant alive. Yeah, to kind of build on um, Seth's comment there about the plant's knowledge, if you will, of how much water is in the substrate. What in these hydroponic medias, and this is kind of equivalent to fields, is the the matrix potential. It's the scientific terminology of looking at um, how much vacuum has to be applied by the roots into the substrate in order to pull water out. In our hydroponic medias, um, rock wool especially, uh, and definitely cocoa, is that the matrix potential curves aren't very steep. And so the amount of available water, if we want to go with traditional agriculture terms, is usually very high until there's pretty much no water. And so the you know the plant's actual water stress happens in, in water contents that are much lower than we ever really want to run. Uh, and that's what uh, that's what Seth's building on. You check out some of the videos if you just Google search meter group matrix potential. We've got uh, We've got some excellent scientific documentation. I know Galen's done some videos on this. And it's really kind of great to think about, especially you know, in the fact that traditional agriculture takes advantage of um, the specific isotherms or moisture absorption isotherms based on those medias. And in hydroponic medias, uh, it's something that, for the most part, we don't have to think about. 
but it is great to understand. Oh, absolutely. I think anyone interested in growing even hydroponics should, if you have the chance to take a soil science class, you'll develop a deep appreciation for how we're not dealing with defined horizons. We're not dealing with the gradient in uh, particle size. We don't worry about sand, silt, or clay. <laughs> you know, we have a pretty, pretty consistent media that it's even throughout. So when we're trying to do something uh, effectively, it's a little bit more simple. And we're also, you know, lucky enough to be not dealing with bad soil composition, right? <laughs> we only bring good media into our indoor grows. So like Jason said, I think any of these growers here would really enjoy taking that class. Even though we're feeding hydroponically, you'll still get a lot out of, uh, you know, how plant nutrients interact with the media that they're in. Cause there are differences between rock wool and cocoa, let's say in terms of cation exchange capacity, that cat, that cocoa will hold on to not a lot. It's still a hydroponic media. It's not a soil but it will hold on to a fair bit more uh, negative ions than rock wool will. So doing a deep dive in there can be really good and get you a lot of condensed knowledge in a short amount of time. Wonderful. Thank you, guys. Um, so it looks like we don't have any other questions. Do you have any final words in our last couple minutes here? Uh, Michael says he grows seven-foot plants in a six-inch cocoa cube. So. Definitely making the most of his media there. Maybe a little too much you, did, of the media. I just want to ask, Michael, did you recently switch from like a three and a half or a five gallon pot to the tiny cubes? He'll let us know. I know. Uh, <laughs> That's a no. No. Because no. no. <laughs> for me, that happened. Like, holy crap, going from a three and a half gallon pot that I hand filled. So who knows how much was actually in there. <laughs> consistent one gallon pot all of our plants were like two feet taller that first round just because we we outgrew them right away uh he wrote here no just too long of veg times yeah <laughs> that'll get you we got another question here from luke uh luke wants to know can you function automatic feeds similar to blue mats so i'm going to just do a little assumption and or interpretation there um you know a blue mat uh historically those things are irrigating based on a, a matrix potential. Um, and so when the soil starts to dry out, the blue mat opens up an irrigation drip. Um, we don't do uh, set point irrigations. Um, we don't initially have intentions to do set point irrigations with open sprinkler. As far as doing true crop steering and making the most of every cycle of all the plant genetics available for cannabis, I don't personally like to do set point irrigations because that means that um, you know, without having a, a plan on what drybacks we're trying to achieve, what uh, EC we're trying to hit, that the system can um, irrigate automatically. And so what's going to happen there is it's just going to continuously bounce back and forth between the set points, you know, with a blue blue mat. That's just a, a physical parameter of how they built those. Um, it's just going to bounce back and forth between those. So you might end up with night irrigations. You might end up with irrigations all day long when you're trying to run generatively. Um, and so, you know, the only caveat there is, you know, maybe a, a really low water content, um, emergency set point would be, would be okay, but that really shouldn't be happening very often. If you're taking advantage of your array system and, and getting in there appropriate media sizes for your plant, um, plant builds, how big those plants are. So, uh, you know, take a little bit of time, dig in to understand, you know, why would we really need to have a, a set point irrigation is that going to be the most helpful choice for us? Or do we want to 
be optimizing our plant performance based on uh, a lot of the crop steering technology that we've brought in from um, tomatoes and other horticulture industries. Yeah, just to build on that, you know, that set point is only going to, like Jason said, water between those two points. So if you're going to try to stack EC and modulate runoff, that's going to be a little difficult with the set point based. And even with set point based, like let's just talk about stretch for a moment. It's great if I'm running rock wall, hit that set point down at 40. I'm never going to overdry, right? Every day during stretch, I am adding a little bit of volume or every so many days, another shot. All right. Well, if I have to program all of those if and then set points, I've already built an irrigation schedule that I can just run. And, you know, theoretically, if everything else is consistent, I can just count on my alarms to tell me when a solenoid broke. Yeah, and actually, another thing that I'm kind of thinking of there, you know, blue mats are, they're dictating the irrigation to an individual plant. And so, you know, maybe someone's doing that because they have a very low crop consistency. You know, their their plants, one to the next, are performing significantly different as far as their fertigation needs. And from my standpoint, usually, instead of trying to band-aid it with a, a very manipulated irrigation system, if you will, it's better to go back in there and revise some of the processes that are going on at your facility. Do we have a good clone cutting SOP? Are mm. we taking plant heights during our, our, um, our veg times and our flip times and, and through all this? And so, you know, get an idea is what is the consistency of my uh, climate parameters across the room? You know, if we see, you know, plant variation is, is zonal, then, you know, we might know that it might be related to um, an irrigation parameter or a climate parameter. Uh, if it's very spotty, then that stuff uh, probably came from the younger life, um, the younger cycle in that plant, or you've got some emitters that are getting dripped or uh, getting clogged, mm. excuse me, some of those dripping emitters, <clears throat> especially if you're, you've put organics throughout your system, it's very likely that some of the flow rates from one dripper to the next aren't, aren't as accurate. So go in there, check those out, and, and then kind of work back from, from where you're at. Yeah, and just, you know, really, really learn to recognize <clears throat> where you've got Band-Aids in your processes. You know, if we're talking about something like late, late flower powdery mildew or something, if we're spraying for fungus after, you know, week three, it's too humid in there. We've got to work on that environmental problem. Every spray we throw at it is, is a bit of a bandaid or is a bandaid. So if like, if, you know, just, just getting out there reading, seeing what other people are doing, because depending on where you got your information from in the past, there are a lot of hacks people had to do to make it work with where they were. You know, if I wrote a book about growing in my basement, I, I would have a lot of those hacks in there <laughs> and I wouldn't recommend anyone try to do all that, you know, on a commercial level. So just recognizing that stuff. And like Jason was talking about clone consistency, that's actually a huge part that a lot of people struggle with as they get going. It's figuring out, okay, how do I grow my moms to give me, you know, a hundred consistent clones? And it's not easy. It still takes the human touch. and it's strain specific. So when you're working on, you know, shaping that mom, every strain is going to react a little differently to your topping and it's just going to take time. This still takes a lot of work for the farmer. Need our farmers. Luke also posted here. I agree with your system. Cheers. We currently function with similar protocols. Then he asks, are there programmable alarms within your sensors? Absolutely. One of the nice things we've done with our alarms is you can build them right into a recipe. 
the next time you start harvest group, supply the recipe that you need for that room or that strain specifically. And it's going to plot out your alarms based on the phase that you're in and that top and bottom level. Uh, another feature that we've done in there, it's one I really, really like, is uh, talking about target ranges versus alarms. And so actually our alarms specifically are called alerts. So we have, we have two ranges that you can do. You can do what's called the target range. And that for me is where I'm trying to set the, the golden standard, or at least pretty close to the golden standard. That's where I want to visually and documented have uh, a way to communicate to all of my growers, this is what we want to achieve. So it's clear and obvious. Someone doesn't go in there and, and make an accidental change because they know what is supposed to be happening. If they need to make a change, they know what that change needs to be set to. And the second half of that is the alerts to address the question. So those are, are set up by my phase. You can do them for, I think, any sensor type that we have out there. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, put your relative humidity alerts in there. Put your VPD alerts, uh, temperature alerts, water content, EC alerts. And the way that our alerts work is the corresponding members of your facility can subscribe to that alert type. So they can choose which specific ones they want to, to work off of. Maybe you've got a, a guy that's in charge of uh, keeping HVAC systems in, in line. Uh, he, he doesn't really need to get water content EC alerts. Have him sign up for the appropriate alerts on there. And that'll send a text message. You can also sign up for alerts from the mobile app, and it'll push a push notification. It's really up to you. Uh, I think the push notifications are slightly more comprehensive, but they, you know, you do require to have uh, internet access at the time that you receive that alert. So I personally prefer the text messages. I kind of live out in the sticks, and so it's uh, it's nice to to know that I'll get a text message regardless of where I'm at, what I'm doing. Oh yeah. And you can, I mean, one thing I like about setting those alerts separate from our target ranges is we can look at ideal conditions and keep that there and watch over time how well we can approach those in a particular facility. But also with those alerts, you can set them like, you know, for me at home, I'll have mine set for temperature, for instance, um, you know, 78 to 82 is my ideal target range that I'm looking to achieve there in my room. Yeah. Realistically, I don't have an alarm set. It's a, uh, it's at 65 for the low and 90 for the high because 65 means something shut off in there and it's in my basement <laughs> and 90 means it's the summertime and my AC broke at my house. Both of those things I want an alert for, but because I know that I usually I keep it from 74 to 80 somewhere in there. I don't really want a lot of alerts if I'm going outside of my ideal range, but Hey, five years from now, if I've made a lot of changes to that, it's cool to look back and say, hey, man, I could never keep a two degree temperature range. And now look at this. There it is. Yeah. And that, that's a that's a great point. There's have some dead band between your targets and your alert ranges. And when you go in there and think about what you want to set those parameters to, you know, work with your the, the cultivators, your head cultivators, director of um, crop sciences, you know, whatever staff you have that's educated about where they want to be running those parameters for that strain type. Leave some dead band. If you go back and look at some of your historical data and say, these are the parameters that we can usually operate in when nothing breaks, then use yep. those as your high and lows for the alerts. And, and really that idea there is to minimize the number of alerts you get so that you can be actionable on them and you know that something needs to be addressed. Exactly. Like if I get a water content alert at five in the morning, um, I want that to be you know, if I get it, look at my phone and see it, I want to take it seriously. I don't want to get in the habit of ignoring those because eventually 
a solenoid's going to break or a pump's going to break. I'm going to walk in and see a room that dried down, you know, five more percent than I thought it was going to. But that 5% was 22 to 17. And now I've got a situation where like I'm standing in there with a hose or a bucket <laughs> trying to rehydrate these almost hydro, you know, suddenly your morning quick, what could have been a quick fix turns into a half a day problem for maybe even a couple people on your staff. So it's, it's nice to make sure you set those. So you really do take them seriously. And I think we're all that way. That's why we have a junk mail folder in our email. You know, when you just get swamped with too much information that's meaningless, you tend to sometimes ignore the important things too. And I, uh, I've been pretty excited since we started on how many clients have come to me and said, you know, really, really appreciative of how our alert system works because it, it saved them from a, a critical event um, happening. Um, or it, it or it caught a critical event soon enough that they were able to to mitigate any of the negative financial impacts of uh, equipment failure. Oh yeah, or even having eyes on it with the twenty four seven data logging. You know, without say monitoring your overnight conditions when you're not there, and you just have like let's say a cheap garden hygrometer with a high and low point. That's not not a whole lot of information. You know, once we can say set an, uh, a humidity alarm or a VPD alarm alert rather. And you get a, an alert at 6 o'clock p.m. You're not there, but that's when the lights turn off and you see the swing. Now you're figuring out, okay, that's where it's happening. Because, it, you know, when I come in in the morning, it's not that, not that humid in there. When did it do it? Oh, it did it for half the night and it caught up. We need, <laughs> we need some capacity. We need to bring the temperature up, whatever we got to do. But, uh, yeah, so many people have found a lot of value in just not not messing up as much or be, being able to detect it and figure it out before it's gone too long. Yeah, and um, I think maybe some of the, the worst stories we've heard is actually when our system sent out alerts when uh, an HPS bolt popped and uh, started the plastic benches on fire and the room was burning. So um, hopefully that doesn't happen to y'all. Yeah, absolutely. No, I've, I've seen some very similar situations in my own life and uh, – Having a sensor in the right spot would have definitely saved some crops. That's for sure. <laughs> There's a lot of ways to ruin these things. And, uh, man, you don't want it to be something as simple as a breaker popped overnight and your room got way too cold and humid. You know, when you go like, man, that five minutes and I just would have had to run in, flip a breaker, change a light bulb or something, and it would have saved everything. That's, that's worth it alone. Yeah, we've got some love for the uh, for uh, our alarms here in the comments. Uh, Michael writes, alarm parameters, IPM scheduling, and task management are some of my favorite things. And Luke writes, love the peace of mind, insurance, and easy accessibility. That's what it's about, making growers' lives easier, right? That's why we do what we do. Yeah, we know you guys want to take a vacation. Someday leave, <laughs> leave the farm and not, not be worried about it or thinking about it all day. That's it. Roy is trying to help growers go on vacation. Awesome. What an excellent conversation. Seth and Jason, dropping the knowledge as usual. Thank you guys so much. Thank you to our attendees for talking about what's going on with your cultivation, sharing what's working for you. We're so excited to talk to you. This is what we're, we're here for you. Um, so thank you guys for joining us today for this week's Arroyo Office Hours. I got email addresses, so we have raffle going. I've got hats to send out. Very excited about that. For everybody else out there, if you have any questions about Arroyo, how it can be used to improve your cultivation production process or any other topic you'd like covered in a future episode of Office Hours, please post it in the chat. 
shoot us an email at support.arroya at metergroup.com or send us a DM over Instagram. We want to hear from you. So we record every session. We'll email everybody who attended today a link to the video from today's discussion. It will also be on the Arroyo YouTube channel. Please like, subscribe, and share while you're there. And if you find these conversations helpful, please do share them with your network and spread the word. Seth and Jason, I'll see you next time. See ya. Thanks, Keisha. Have a good day, everyone. Bye. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroyo, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroyo.io.